By the time the officer saw the gun, it was too late. 19-year-old Zachary Anam, a shoplifting suspect, was handcuffed in the back seat of an Austin police cruiser on his way to the department's downtown headquarters. But Anam wouldn't make it that far. He told the officer driving he was suicidal. And he says uh, something about, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the jail. I hear uh, the racking of the slide on a semi-automatic pistol. The officer pulled over. Anam had been searched, but the officer had somehow missed the pistol tucked into the back of his waistband. Handcuffed, Anam had managed to wriggle his hands just enough to pull out the pistol, aim it at his head, and pull the trigger. 10-4, shots fired inside the vehicle. CPR in progress. Starting EMS. Yeah, starting EMS. I can see in the reflection we've got blood. That was in January 2017. Since then, police dispatches, 911 calls, documents, and some recordings on the case have been released. But thanks to a loophole in Texas's Public Information Act, there's still some evidence that remains unseen, more than a year after the investigation into Nam's case was closed. What it says is that police agencies may withhold information in closed cases where the suspect did not go through the court process. On this week's episode, Josh Hinkle and Sarah Rafik of TV station KXAN walk us through their investigation into the legal loophole that allows police to keep crucial evidence secret when suspects die in custody. If you can't see what's going on with your police department, then perhaps that means that the community might not trust the police as much as they could if it was more transparent. I'm Tessa Weinberg, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. Anam's suicide was a major story back in 2017, and most local news outlets were covering it. Josh Hinkle, the station's executive producer of in-depth and investigative content, wondered how KXAN could dig deeper into the questions that still remained. It seems like, to us, finding a handgun under someone's waistband, if you're truly patting them down, was you know a little surprising that you would miss something like that. They wanted to know if the missed gun was an isolated incident. So they started by submitting a records request to find out more details about how the search was conducted. We felt like having visual proof of how the search was done was very important to see if this officer did follow things by the rules that he's supposed to based in department policy. Josh knew from the investigator's report that there was video evidence from the mall where the shoplifting occurred and from the camera inside the patrol car. I think one of the questions we always get is, why did you want this video from inside the car to see what happened when this kid shot himself? And it's not that anyone wants to watch that, but to truly understand what happened, that's what needs to be done. They got some records in response to their request, like documents, radio dispatches, 911 calls, and recordings of internal affairs hearings and interviews. But the video evidence Josh requested was withheld. They said because they'd done their internal investigation and closed the case that they had discretion because of this specific law to withhold that information that I wanted to see what really happened permanently. My reaction at first when we got the 
records requests back, and we were being denied all that information. I was a little confused because the exception that they were citing wasn't something that I was used to seeing. You know, often when you're dealing with a police case, they will cite something about the case is still ongoing or the prosecution might still be ongoing, so that's why they're withholding the information. But I knew this case was closed. The Austin Police Department denied part of Josh's request based on an obscure loophole in the Texas Public Information Act. Implemented by the Texas legislature, the provision gave police departments the discretion to withhold information in closed cases if a suspect didn't go through the court process. It was originally meant to help protect the privacy of people who had been arrested, but were later found innocent or had their charges dropped. But the law also had an unintended consequence. Information in cases involving dead suspects, even ones where a suspect died in police custody, often remained confidential, even if the suspect couldn't proceed through the courts because they're, well, dead. I think for most people, it's just a little bit confusing. Why wouldn't you be able to have access to those files? Because they're never going to need to be used against that individual. That individual is dead. That's Sarah Rafiq, a digital investigative reporter at KXAN. So when families wanted to try to get answers or lawyers representing those families may be hoping to file a police misconduct suit or even journalists really just pursuing the truth of the matter, they weren't able to get that information about the dead suspects. And it's really unfolded over the last 20 years. Josh had never heard of the puzzling police exception before the Anon case, so he reached out to the Freedom of Information Foundation of Texas, which advocates for free speech and First Amendment rights, to see if they knew more. They told me, yes, this does happen, and unfortunately it's happened for a long time, and they had even been involved in trying to point out this law to legislators in the 2017 legislative session at the Texas Capitol. A bill introduced in 2017 would have amended the Texas Public Information Act to require police to release closed case information if the suspect was dead or agreed to its release. It failed eventually just because it was brought up so late in the legislative session. But the really interesting part of it were the testimonies from the witnesses there. And their testimony was just so moving that I really understood that this was a bigger story than just something that a journalist was mad about because they couldn't get records. Josh wanted to know how big the problem was. But as he started to look around, he found that no one really knew the full scope. We discovered there's really no tracking of this loophole or this police exception in general. Even the Texas Attorney General, whose office reviews appeals and ultimately decides if police need to release information, doesn't know. To find out, records requests would need to be sent to every police department in Texas. For the initial investigation, Josh limited his focus to the Austin Police Department, looking at how it used the exemption over a period of 10 years. We went through all of the public information requests that they had received, which are tens of thousands over the years in that that decade. And what we ended up finding were there were about 70 times that they had denied um, public information requests based on this exception and sent it to the attorney general for a ruling. And in every single one of those cases, the attorney general told the city of Austin, yes, you can withhold this information based on this. They decided to keep digging. For a follow-up investigation, 
Josh and Sarah have been looking at the issue across the state. So the first thing that we wanted to do was identify which cities we wanted to look for. Obviously, ideally, with a statewide story, you would love to reach out to every single city, every single county, but we really needed to kind of parse it down and narrow it down. So they chose 21 departments to focus on. These included police and sheriff departments in Texas's largest cities and counties, including Dallas County and Houston, as well as the statewide Department of Public Safety. Before they sent out records requests, they went to the website of the Attorney General, which posts information on all in-custody deaths in Texas since 1978. And so what we did was narrow that down to just the deaths since the law went into effect, which was 1997. And then we specifically looked for the deaths that occurred at the 21 agencies that we were looking into. And so once we were able to narrow down a list of the deaths, that helped us in requesting how many times law enforcement agencies have used an exemption to withhold information from the public because the death occurred in custody. Since 1997, there have been nearly 4,200 in-custody deaths in Texas. The AG's website used to let users easily export data. Now, it's only searchable, but there's additional information included. So it's kind of like a give and take. So the online system allows you to search by the inmate's name and it allows you to search by the agency. Of course, not all of them are uniform. Some people will spell out departments. Some people will do DEPT. Some people will do all caps, all lowercase. As they gather data, Sarah and Josh built their own database. Once they knew the names of the deceased, they sent requests to each department asking for every time the exemption was used to deny records related to those cases. They also asked for any attorney general rulings related to those denials. And on top of that, we also wanted to have the original request so we can figure out who are making these requests that are being denied. Are they media people? Are they lawyers that are trying to advocate on behalf of families? Are they civil rights groups or are they families themselves? And of course, we're finding that each agency holds its records a different way, which is a whole other layer of difficulty in us getting the information. They've heard back from most of the departments, but because Texas law only requires departments to retain open records requests for two years, some didn't have documents going back to 1997. And some offices only provided the attorney general's ruling and not the original request. In those cases, they had to ask for the original documents from the AG's office itself. The process took negotiation and patience. One of the first agencies that I dealt with on this Actually, I had to do the most negotiating for. That was the Houston Police Department. And they were pretty much saying it was going to take a couple of years for them to get us the information because they said that they would only be able to devote one hour every day to fulfilling my open records request. And because basically all of their files were kept off-site in storage, except for like the last year or so, they wouldn't have been able to go through that information quickly. Cue the negotiation. And so it was a lot of conversation back and forth saying, how else can we get this information? Is there anything at all we can do to narrow it down? Even when departments are being difficult, Sarah recommends remaining polite and respectful. And if they do deny your request, ask why and what other options may be available. Sarah and Josh's persistence ultimately paid off. They've already found 60 public records denials involving 41 deaths, And that's just for the 21 agencies they're looking at. Josh said it's likely that number will grow as they get more responses to their requests.
wasn't just about public records. Josh wanted to know how the loophole affected real people, the families of suspects who died in custody. But getting family members to open up about their loved ones took time. Anam's family had been hard to find following their son's death. And publicly, they'd said little about what happened. But Josh was able to track down Anam's father, who had begun to work with troubled youth eight months after his son's suicide. And one of the things he's done is start up a classic car body shop where kids that were his son's age or even younger can come by and work on cars. And these are kids that might have challenging home lifestyles or they might have gotten in trouble in school. And this is kind of an outlet for them so he can maybe help mentor them and help keep them off the streets also. Josh showed up at the body shop's grand opening. And as it turned out, Anam's dad was open and briefly talking at the event. He found another family at the Capitol, where testimony was taking place around the 2017 bill that would have closed the loophole. My name is Kathy Dyer. I represent myself. I represent my deceased son, Graham Dyer. That's Kathy Dyer, testifying before lawmakers about the death of her son, Graham, back in 2013. Graham Dyer was 18 years old when he was arrested for the first and last time. A music lover and an avid drummer, Graham grew up in the small town of Paris, Texas. From everything I understand from his parents, Graham was a really funny kid. He apparently joked around and was just the life of the party. They said that when he walked into a room, his smile would just light up the room. But the last time Graham's parents would get to see him alive, he wouldn't be smiling. And in the middle of the night, Kathy and Robert Dyer got a call and said, you need to get to the hospital quick. Your son has injured himself. They learned Graham had been arrested for public intoxication while high on LSD. He had been charged with resisting arrest and assaulting a police officer. According to an arrest report, he bit an officer's fingers. Graham had suffered blunt force trauma to his head. He never woke up in the hospital, and his parents had to take him off life support. The medical examiner ruled his death an accident. The Dyers wanted to know what exactly happened to their son. They knew they needed evidence, like dashcam footage and records, to find out what happened in their son's final moments. They also wanted to know if there was any misconduct on the part of the police. When they asked for the information and for the videos, they were denied under this same police exception that we've come across. And they didn't understand why they couldn't see it. They thought, well, we're this kid's parents. We should be able to see it. It's our right. So the Dyers decided to sue. The Mesquite Police Department had already conducted its own investigation and found no wrongdoing on the part of its officers. That explanation wasn't good enough for the Dyer family. So when they tried to bring this lawsuit up, the judge wouldn't let it move forward because there was not enough evidence to prove that something possibly could have happened that would indicate any kind of misconduct. The Dyers felt like they were out of options. So Kathy began to conduct research of her own. She spent many, many, many sleepless nights just scouring the internet, scouring records, trying to figure out if anything like this had ever happened before and how people were able to get records in their cases. She came across the FBI and the fact that it will investigate civil rights violations. Kathy contacted the FBI, and they took up her case and began an investigation of their own. Ultimately, they determined there wasn't enough to merit a civil rights case. While it wasn't the outcome the Dyers were hoping for, the FBI had conducted an independent investigation and was therefore in possession of documents, videos, and other evidence 
the Mesquite police wouldn't hand over. And because the FBI is a federal agency that's not bound by Texas laws, including our Public Information Act, they were able to release that information to the family that they'd so desperately been trying to get for years at that point. Kathy filed a Federal Freedom of Information Act request with the FBI and finally received the evidence they had been denied under the Texas police exemption. Among the records was the video that detailed the night Graham died, showing his arrest until the moment he arrived at jail. Graham and some friends had been at a local middle school when Mesquite police officers arrived close to midnight on August 13, 2013. They had received a call about a disturbance. When the surveillance video from the school starts, a police officer tells Graham to get his hands out of his pockets. Graham doesn't and keeps moving toward the officer. Graham comes up and is really rushing at him and is screaming and you can't really understand what he's saying. And the police officer is telling him, stop, stop, stop. And Graham gets right up on him, and the police officer ends up tasing him. Graham falls down and rolls on the ground. This continues as more police officers show up and stand around him. One of them even has his foot on Graham to hold him down. They try to ask Graham his name, who he is, what he's taken. As Graham squirms on the ground, officers can tell something must be wrong. What's your name, brother? Graham Dyer. Graham Edward Dyer. What do you think, brother? What are you on, hey. man? Not, not, no, 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 not that. Graham was on LSD, something police didn't know for certain at the time. The officers handcuffed Graham and placed him in the back seat of a cruiser. And at that point, most of what you see with Graham Dyer is from the camera that was inside the car. And they're transporting him to the jail, and during this time, he is handcuffed, but they didn't strap him down in the back of the car. And so he is just thrashing about violently. Graham begins to scream. He rams his head on the back seat, on the cage dividing the front of the car from the back, on the side window. He bashes his head almost 50 times. And it's hard. You can hear it. And it happens over and over and over again. And the officer who's driving the car keeps telling him to stop. And at that point, Graham doesn't stop. And so the police officer pulls the car over and another police officer pulls his car over. And both of those officers come on either side of the back seat where Graham is. And apparently Graham bit one of the officers on the finger, and that officer punches Graham. An officer tases Graham even more and tells the teen, I'm going to kill you. And he's just thrashing about, it's making things worse. And finally, after being shocked many, many times, he does go limp. When they finally arrive at the jail, dash cam footage shows Graham falling out of the car as they open the door. Officers heave him up and carry him through another door out of the camera's view. That's the last you see of Graham. And the last thing you hear of Graham is him screaming over and over. And we know at that point, based on different accounts that were in the records and the medical documents and the medical examiner's report, that he was left in a jail cell for hours after that while he had this brain injury. 
Records show more than two hours passed before an ambulance was called. By the time someone went to check on Graham, he was unresponsive. The first time I saw the video, I was shocked. It was really violent, and just seeing him hit his head in the back of the car, it was a lot to handle. But every time you saw that that happened, you can understand how he died and why this is so upsetting. And to this day, his parents have never even watched the video. They've let their lawyer watch it, but they've heard how bad it is, and they don't want to see that. It took time to gain the Dyers' trust and get them comfortable speaking about the horrific event on camera. Kathy Dyer was hesitant, but the family's perspective was important, especially since Mesquite police wouldn't comment for the story. After several phone calls and emails, where Josh explained their project, what they hoped to accomplish, his past work, and why he wanted to speak with them, Kathy invited Josh and a cameraman to their house in Paris, Texas. One afternoon, they made the nearly five-hour drive north. My photographer, Andrew Choate, and I, the whole way there, we were not quite knowing what to expect, but talked a lot about different ways that the interview could go and things we could talk about with them and not be too upsetting. When they arrived, the Dyers came to the front door and warmly greeted the journalists. You know, they automatically just started talking about Graham and showing us things in the house, like the music room where he used to play the drums and pictures of him. Josh knew the interview would be emotional and tried to approach it more like a conversation, letting the Dyers stop for breaks if they needed to. I think one of the big things with a setup like this where you're interviewing a couple about something that is so hard to talk about is giving them the ability to respond to each other and to kind of play off each other in a conversation with me. They made sure to place the camera so viewers could read the faces of both Kathy and Robert. I think expressions say a lot. And when you can see one person expressing something on their face while the other one's talking, I think that that's sometimes more powerful than words. Here's Kathy Dyer during the interview talking about Graham. I wonder where he would be at this point. You know, would he have gotten through his college or would he be married with kids or, you know, who knows what? You know, all that's lost. Kathy's persistence was unique. Most families will never unearth the secrets protected by the records exception. The majority of the time, that's where it stops. These people will never get the information that they're seeking, not even families. And there's not a lot you can do about it. And you can challenge things through getting involved in the attorney general process. But as we've seen, it almost always is in favor of the law enforcement agency because by Texas law, they can do that. They can withhold that information under this statute. Sometimes video evidence is released, but usually not until long after a case is closed. In some cases, you get lucky, like the Dyers did, and find that there is a backdoor way, but it won't always work that way. You know, unless lawmakers change the law, that's just kind of where it stands. Graham's case was just one of dozens where this loophole was cited, and the video showed there was more to the story. Just knowing that that type of video exists makes you wonder what else exists in all of these dozens of requests that have been denied. We have a lot of law enforcement agencies in the state of Texas, and 
I bet the majority of them and the majority of officers within them are doing a good job and want to do what's right by citizens. But in the off chance that there is a police department or a police officer who is doing wrong, people just want to understand what's happening and they want answers and they want to be able to see the proof themselves. I think transparency leads to trust and this is the perfect type of loophole to show how that whole system can really fall apart. broadcast piece relied heavily on audio and video from the police, and much of that footage was extremely graphic. The newsroom had conversations about what level of content to show. We never wanted to show someone when they were dying, absolutely, but we did feel like the things that led up to the death were important to show, because this whole series was based around access to video, and Letting viewers be able to see what truly happened was important to understand why others wanted those answers. They ended up blurring clips that showed the moment of someone's death. They also decided to bleep out profanity, add warnings about graphic content, and give the overall series a surveillance camera feel. In the final package, you barely see Josh. We did a half-hour special where you saw me two times in it, where I'm just kind of introducing it and then um, capping it off at the end. And the reason that I decided to do that was just because I felt like we had enough good elements without having a reporter's involvement in it. And it was still a story, and it wasn't just a mashup of a bunch of different clips. The characters in the story and the video in the story tell it so much more powerfully than I could have as the reporter. The project launched online with a landing page where viewers could watch all five segments of the piece at once, explore related documents, and even take a quiz to think through what they would do if they were the police. That same day, KXAN rolled out the first segment on Facebook. It became one of the most watched videos in the history of the station's page. And then each day after that, for the next four days, we rolled out the next episode. And then by the end of the week, we were ready to start airing the series on air. That way we had received as much traction as we felt like we're going to get on the initial splash to really make a difference and an impact. Viewer reactions ranged from sympathy for the families to outrage. And some felt like the investigation was anti-police. So it was important for us to, in addition to putting the stories out there, to make sure that we were doing enough around the stories to let people know what the true purpose of this was and that we weren't trying to be anti-police and talk about the things that police agencies had done right when they had released the information. They tried to respond to most of the comments, calls, and emails that came in. And Josh even held Facebook Live Q&As, where readers could ask him to elaborate on his findings. Since the investigation aired, one of the lawmakers involved in trying to close the loophole during the last legislative session has vowed to try and bring the issue before legislators again in January. And nearly five years after Graham's death, the Dyers finally got the green light to move forward with their lawsuit. Evidence turned up during the FBI's review gave the case new life, and a judge ruled the Dyers had enough to proceed with their lawsuit, alleging one of the officers used excessive force. And at this point, that's where the lawsuit is. One of the officers, the one that tased Graham multiple times, is facing a misconduct lawsuit 
by the Dyer family. Thanks for listening. Take a look at our episode notes for links to KXAN's reporting and resources for requesting public records. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. And you can spend hours listening to the stories behind some of the best investigative reporting in the country at ire.org slash podcast. On our next episode, Abby Arbiguena talks with James Barragan of the Dallas Morning News about his reporting that found Texas officials failed to protect workers, many undocumented immigrants, against wage theft after Hurricane Harvey. You know, workers are always hesitant to report abuse because they depend on their labor to get paid and feed their families, but this made it all that more worse. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Tessa Weinberg. Podcast. Podcast.